This is the 12 Songs of Christmas. I'm Alex Rawls, and this is my podcast about Christmas music. If this is your first time with us, thanks for trying 12 Songs. This week's show continues a run of very cool conversations I've had in the last few months. I've talked with guitarist Steve Lukather about his Christmas album, Santimental, and his memories of playing with Eddie Van Halen for the album. Talked to jazz vocalist Jackie Naylor on the relationship between arena rock and Christmas music, and DJ Gareth Jones on indie rock Christmas music. Last week, I talked to the electro lounge duo 11 Acorn Lane about the influence of the Latin composer Esquivel on their Happy Holy Days album. Today's show goes down one of 12 songs rabbit holes with author and singer Peter Arulian. Many episodes of 12 songs have circled back to the influence of Peter Garaldi and a Charlie Brown Christmas, while others find their way back to Trans-Siberian Orchestra, including two interviews actually with members of Trans-Siberian Orchestra. In the first season, I talked to a founder of Wizards in Winter, a band inspired by Trans-Siberian Orchestra. And while Arulian wasn't specifically inspired by TSO, his album, The Bell Ringer, treads similar progressive metal turf, and he got the thumbs up from TSO founder Paul O'Neill. Aurelian is based in Seattle, and as we talk about, he's found ways to bring together his background as a singer and his career as an author. We'll get to Aurelian in that conversation in a few minutes, but I want to start with one of my favorite artists, Carla Blay. Blay is a jazz composer whose work is shown in sane range from the three-record avant-garde opus Escalator Over the Hill from 1971 to her 2020 elegantly adult musical conversation between herself, sax player Andy Shepard, and bassist Steve Swallow, Life Goes On. The title is the kind of mature wisdom that the music reflects, but Blay's work hasn't always been so easy to parse. She wrote, I Hate to Sing, for her then-drummer D Sharp, who did hate to sing, then asked him to sing it in front of an audience on her 1984 live album with the same name. Blake gave me one of the best unusable interviews I've ever experienced when she met me in a lobby of a hotel in Toronto. I was with a friend who was involved in cancer research, and when she learned that, she decided to interview him instead. Once I realized she was only going to go back to talking about her music when she had satisfied her curiosity, I relaxed and enjoyed a conversation that clearly delighted both her and my friend, who was also a fan. That also felt consistent with Blay as I knew her from her records. For years, she played a complicated game with her music, teasing humor and unreliability to complicate the relationship between her, her songs, and the audience. When she recorded Carla's Christmas Carols in 2009 with Steve Swallow and the Berlin-based Partika Brass Quintet, she treats the music as music first, drawing attention to the fundamental truth that so many musicians have observed about Christmas classics, that they're amazing songs first. There are subtly smart touches all over the album, such as letting Swallow's bass carry the melody on Away in the Manger. And I love the pony rhythm that seems obvious in retrospect on Jingle Bells. Blay takes the song seriously and builds genuinely involved and involving compositions from commonplace material which makes it one of the handful of Christmas albums I enjoy listening to straight through. In general, I prefer mixes, radio, and one-off tracks. But Carlos' Christmas Carols is a complete intelligent statement that works as a soundtrack for the season and as music. We're going to hear It Came Upon a Midnight Clear, 
which could be from a Guys and Dolls Christmas, if such a thing existed, and if she would have leaned any harder into the theatricality of her arrangement. The easy swing and the muted, growling trumpet playing the melody strikes a tone that seems both at odds with the solemnity of the song, but still celebratory and respectful in its way. Blaze strikes a very exact and specific tone and does so unerringly. We'll hear Carla Blaze's version of It Came Upon a Midnight Clear. Then we'll be back on the other side with Peter Arulian. I grew up in um, Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, I attended school there, uh, went to the University of Utah, and shortly after graduation, um, my the band that I was in thought, you know, we wanted to take our big shot, as most young bands do. And um, our options were L.A., like everybody thinks, or, or we thought maybe Seattle because... Um, there was so much industry here and it was certainly focused around the grunge music movement, but we knew that there was still um, the, the good network of people we could uh, potentially get our music in front of here. So we took the plunge and we moved. Um, I, I, I stipulated to it personally, um, largely because there's a, a vocal trainer here. There was, he's since passed by the name of David Kyle. Um, David taught such voices as Jeff Tate from Queensryche and Anna Nancy Wilson from Heart and um, Lane Staley from Alice in Chains. And so he had this just amazing pedigree of um, vocalists. And I thought, well, uh, you know, I wanted to, to take my voice to new places. Um, so I, we came and in a few months, the band broke up. The stress of the move was just too much. And um, I continued with my voice training Um and it's probably the reason I stayed in Seattle. Um, and then, um, you know, life happened. I started working at Microsoft and, um, you know, ended up with a mortgage. Yeah. And um, it's tough when, you know, it's tough when you take on those kinds of responsibilities to um, stay as focused on the dream. Um, not that people haven't done it, but it's it was hard. So um, I'd always had this idea to try and uh, create something that was um, substantively of my main passions in life and that our um, music uh, narrative. I, I'm a published writer. I love to tell stories and I'm, I'm a bona fide Christmas fan. Um, I listen to the music all year. I think, um, I think for 
anybody the idea of um, extending yourself in kindness and selflessness. Um, I, do, I think those are, are human qualities um, such that folks who are not um, given to the religious or reverential about the season usually find themselves a little bit kinder, a little bit more charitable for some reason. And um, I've as ever since I was a kid, that just um, it got inside me. So um, I had had this idea to do the Bell Ringer album um, years and years ago. And when I finally got put out of work at Microsoft, I said, you know what? Even though I was a middle-aged white guy, I was going to give it a go. Ah, That's ah, the story. (laughs) So pick up a couple of pieces in there. First off, so what kind of, what was your band like? What kind of, what did you play? Uh, Well, I'm a vocalist and um, the, in all, I've been in several bands and, um, but, and always as the vocalist. Yeah, the band moved here with would probably be closest to a Queensryche style band. And the reason is it was, um, you know, we played a lot of songs that had odd time signatures in them. Um, I, as a vocalist, I, I'm very enamored in my style. Stylistically, I'm um, clear, sort of powerful, soaring. Uh, I take a lot of pride in the notes I can hit, um, um, you know, with, with strength without moving into falsetto, that sort of uh, accomplishment in voice is um, still something that matters to me personally and in the music I like to listen to. Um, um, now I should, I, should, I should caveat that by, I, I love listening to the standards, um, you know, Sinatra and Tony Bennett and um, Bobby Darren, all those guys. Um, and, uh, I, and I love jazz. I, I really affectionately like a lot of music. But when it gets in the realm of rock, um, while I listen broadly, like I just, I love when the musicians are at the top of their game um, and just kind of all really locked in and doing something that I think is kind of special and unique. And um, that's the group I was in. You know, we thought we were going to make it. (laughs) (laughs) So other piece I wanted to pick up from that, uh, from that opening was what were the, Christmas songs that that you remember or how did Christmas music sort of factor into your you know into growing up yeah you know back then it was um in in our house it was um being Crosby of course we had going all the time the Andrews sisters who I love um the Letterman which is sort of the not a barbershop group per se. It's like a, a, a men's harmony group. Um, it was a lot of the stuff that you can still hear today on, on some of the channels. Um, I remember there was a, um, a group that I listened to that's mostly instrumental called Mannheim Steamroller came, uh, came through town. I went to their first uh, Christmas concert. Um, and I kind of fell in love with their music. Later on, I got to meet Chip Davis, who's the, composer there and got a lot of encouragement from him to you know plow forward and try and make my dream come true with my Christmas music idea um but those are the things where you know it was a lot of the traditional stuff um played around our house I didn't really get come to um I guess more of a rockified Christmas idea till you know many years after I'd even moved here um 
And, um, you know, bands like Trans-Siberian Orchestra started to have music that, you know, you could hear and then, of course, the concerts. But as much as I love that stuff and much as we've been compared to that, um, that's not, you know, that's not how Christmas music got inside me. It was, you know, and even still, when I hear the the older Christmas music, um, it, it uh I don't know. It, I don't want to say nostalgia, but it just um, there's something more earnest or genuine about it to me. And so I, I love that it, it's carried forward. A lot of the a lot of the newer um, artists who um, release versions of the older stuff. Um, uh, and this might just be my bias, but I um I, I tend to prefer the originals. <laughs> Side. We're happy tonight, walking in a winter wonderland. Gone away is the bluebird, here to stay is a new bird. He sings a love song as we go along, walking in a winter wonderland. That, that's interesting you talk, talked about earnestness, because that is one thing I absolutely associate with Trans-Siberian Orchestra. Um, that there is one thing I absolutely never doubt with them, and that is that they are 100% serious about whatever they're saying or doing, that, that they believe in the story they're telling. I think, um, I think the, the, I would agree with that. Um, as it, as it relates to Paul, um, uh, I got to meet Paul too. And, um, Paul was a very, um, genuine person. Um, he, I mean, he, he was obviously quite, quite brilliant in, in how he conceived of all of that and, and pulled it together. Um, but the, the, the narrative elements that they, um, that they make use of and the, um, uh, you know, some of the, 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 the songwriting, it reflects, I think, uh, his sensibility towards the, the, the underpinning of, of Christmas. Um, and so I, you know, it's hard if anybody faithfully delivers, um, a performance of his music and his compositions, I think it comes through because of him, because of what he wrote. Um, and I, I think that the, that the evidence of that is that if you look back over Trans-Siberian Orchestra's, you know, long uh, history, the with with few exceptions the all of the players have kind of churned in and out there's um different people um different vocalists and there's a few that were there in the beginning with with uh with paul um but even some of the seminal songwriters that were were you know with paul they they're not either not part of the group or they they're not part of um the tours but there's something enduring about the music regardless of that and i think that's a testament to you know, what Paul created, you know, God rest his soul, because he's, he, we lost him a few years ago. Right. Now, I, I think you said, I, I want to be careful. Do you see there, uh, there being like a sort of points on the continuity between what Trans-Siberian Orchestra does and your uh, Bell Ringer project? 
Yeah, it's it's sort of impossible to um, write a Christmas rock song and not have there be comparisons. Um, you know, and we're not we're not the only group in the world where um, you know, and and it's uh, it's that it's that old it's sort of a saw that goes. It's impossible to ever compare favorably favorably to the original. Um, so when we set out, like we obviously we were a rock group, we wanted to, but we wanted um, we didn't just want to write rock songs. We didn't want to take standard Christmas tunes and just um, play them through amplifiers. Um, so we took a lot of care in the compositions that um, where we were re-rendering uh, standard. And then there's a, a, a great deal of um, original songs on our record. And the thing that we did, I think we leaned in a little bit more uh, in our, you know, what we did sonically to um, uh, theater elements um, uh, in, in conveyance of the music and the story. And then the other thing that that is, I think, very different about our, our record is um, I started the whole thing with... Um, with the narrative, I started with the story, and I had that charted. And, and um, the song selection, even thematically and tonally, um, where we where we draw on standards, um, are they're thoughtfully um, used at points in the story in order to help move it move the narrative forward. And um, and then there were where there were places where there wasn't a, a song that, that had its own sort of um, impetus uh, and understanding. In the music band or the lyrics, I wrote new new stuff. So from start to finish, our record is a complete story that, that trades on um, um, classic storytelling principles, like the development of character that goes through crisis and change in order to arrive at someplace different and new. Uh, and and so, uh, yes, you can pull songs out in ours, but are um, very different from um, not just TSO, but anybody who's sort of tried to tell a, a Christmas story, ours is truly, truly grounded in those storytelling principles. And, um, you know, because it would be it would be foolish just to try and um, redo TSO. Um, you know, they're already doing it. <laughs> right. When you, for, uh, for instance, you work in uh, God, um, Good King Wenceslas. Yeah. In Bell Ringer. So walk me through both how does that fit in and how do you go about making uh, a good King Wenceslas make sense in this musical context? So what I did with that is the in the story, there's a, a the character's name is Jack Morgan. He's a, a Vietnam veteran who, um, after returning, he actually grew up, so let me give you a little context. He grew up on the street. Um, was a street kid, so he was homeless. Um, he found he tried tried to find some grounding by joining the service. Um, you know, obviously he'd um, he'd get fed, he'd acquire some skills. It was a place to be, and this is a theme in the story that um, Jack is always trying to find some sense of belonging. He then um, comes back from war. He he finds a wife and they have a, a child. And very shortly thereafter, his wife uh, gets sick with cancer. Um, she passes. And the one of the hardest choices he makes is um, knowing that emotionally he's suffering and has never had two nickels to rub together. Um, he, he believes the best thing for his child 
is to give it over to um, social services to find it a home, a stable home. So this um, this is some of the backstory that you get in the in the novel that I wrote for it. But we don't put all of this on the album or all of this on on stage. So the story we get there though opens with Jack arriving back into the city of his birth, which is the Bronx, um, and he he didn't have a penny to his name, and he sees an ad to ring a bell. Um, and this is I know that the 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 close association for bell ringers is the Salvation Army. That mechanic for um, charitable giving is used by lots of uh, other organizations. So I don't ever specify um, that's deliberate. I just, I want it to be the idea of giving, but he takes the job. He goes and he gets this wise old man, sees this, you know, this, this guy walk in. It's same kind of person that comes into his office all the time. Who's kind of on their last, last leg and um, needs some hope. And he gives him the job. So in the, in the record, there's an opening track that is the title track called um, The Bell Ringer. And then the next track is, is the medley. Um, I, I call it Jolly Old Wenceslas because there's um, Jolly Old St. Nicholas is, is weaved into the, this is an instrumental song. And so what I did is I said, look, I've got this character. Um, I, I want to start to associate him with this idea of um, giving, of being out in the cold, being... Um, you know, uncomfortable that way. And and by the way, that was kind of how I originally thought of um, telling a bell ringer story is as a kid, I would pass at Christmas time, these, these men and women ringing bells in the freezing cold. And I always thought, you know, gosh, that's a tough job out outdoor all, you know, all yeah. day long in the cold. Um, it kind of thankless. Um, so, and I always wondered what was the story behind those people's willingness to do that? And anyway, so um, so when you when you read the the um, lyrics of Good King Wenceslas, some of the some of what works through that story is you know this idea of um, being out in the cold. Um, I actually read some of the history, and um, I think it's um, Saint Stephen's Fountain. There's these um, references in the in the song. So, like if you if you watch the thing that we uh, put out this last um, December, we actually show you. There's some illustration that shows you literally as as Jack is um, leaving the office and going to to his post. He goes through a uh, park where there's a fountain. So there's, there's these subtleties for the people who know the deeper um, story of Good King Wenceslas. But because it's an instrumental, it, would, it wouldn't make a lot of sense to actually use the lyrics of Good King Wenceslas. So that's where I decided, okay, I like the themes um, of this, of getting out into the cold, go out and help somebody who's in need. But the, the lyrics will, not make, will be nonsensical to my story. So there we decided to do an instrumental. So the progression in the story is Jack leaves the office with the job. He's on his way to his, his post where he's going to spend the day ringing. Um, and, you know, I actually introduced in the illustrated video moments even there where he's, because he's in, he's in a sort of rough area of the Bronx. And um, even there he passes people who, um, you know, are in the cold uh, and, and in need of food. And we see him actually you know, giving to these people. Right. So I, I kind of constructed it like an onion, which is not a new kind of metaphor, but there's the highest level where it's kind of a, a rollicking rock instrumental. So if that's all you really care for or want at the moment, that's fine. But you can start to plumb this for um, added meaning 
Uh, and it, it, you know, at that level, I did, I worked really hard to have it all be coherent. One question I w- I've been thinking about. I was thinking about while listening to your, uh, your record, and, I, and admittedly, it's the thing I think about when I listen to Trans Siberian Orchestra as well. Is I think that Christmas music is sort of fundamentally intimate, and that Christmas is, has intimacy sort of at its core. And I have to admit that I don't always hear that in prog rock and prog metal. How do you sort out that tension, or is it or you know, how do you sort out sort of making big, high-energy, loud music that is sort of telling sort of intimate stories? Yeah, it's for me. It has to do with um, there. I think that that for me, and I can't speak for everybody, but Christmas has um, you know sort of lots of expressions. Um, there is one that's exceptionally intimate. Um, um, you know, for people who um, are are devoted to the theological ideas, some of those songs um, speak to maybe the most intimate thing. But there's another expression of Christmas that is exuberant. Um, you know, the um, a child's pure joy and excitement at the idea of meeting Santa or waking up to um, presents. Um, even seeing Christmas lights. And those, I think that those are uh, as joyful. They are just a different part of a human expression. And, you know, not to get too high-minded about it, but um, I think that I think that that's kind of a beautiful idea. Um, and I don't think, that, I think that they're consonant with one another. So um, when we were writing our record, um, we have, what I did was there were places where um, I wanted to reflect sort of some of the energy and the exuberance of Christmas. Um, there's also, there's also, um, there's, for me, there's a little bit of this idea that, um, that so many of the, so, so many of the institutions that I grew up with now, you know, come, have come under fire from critics and, naysayers and Christmas is just one and, and that's not new although I feel like it's accelerated in recent decades and there's a part of me that at times wants to kind of just stand up as a champion for it and and declare that um, you know it's fine for you to have a different view uh, on what Christmas means what's not fine is for you to somehow try and require me 
um, to adopt your view or um, tell me that it's not okay for me to express what I feel and love about Christmas. So, you know, one of the one of the songs that turns out to be a favorite on the record is called Yes, Fairy Tales. And it comes in direct response to the song before it called No Fairy Tales, which is one of these people who kind of de decries um, Christmas. And in that song, when you hear it, um, it it has the it has a little bit of that same kind of feeling as do you hear the people sing from Les Mis? It's it's almost a little bit of a fight song. And um, but it also is one of those ones that induces um, the most, not most, but for many of the listeners, a lot of the, the chills where they just find this this um, agreement with the idea that, you know, I'm going to be one that stands in defense of this beautiful thing that brings so many people happiness. And I think that's a very valid uh, idea. So I have, I, you know, and because I feel and think all these things, as I think many do, I wanted to have them reflected in the music. And um, so I, you know, there are a couple of selections on the, on the record that um, are, are, are renditions of um, CPE Bach and Vivaldi, um, Tchaikovsky, you know, and even in Tchaikovsky, if you think about his Nutcracker Suite, you know, there's some very exuberant songs. Um, so what makes them intimate, you know, if you can, if you, I guess you could, you could describe it that way, is their relation to the thing that's dear to you. And that, that 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 thing that you hold dear for whatever reason you do um, can find many expressions. It can be a moment of um, introspection. It can be a moment of, you know, sort of standing up in defense of something that um, you think is defensible. this is I wonder if part of it is just is also because this is the music that you like music you listen to music that is a you know part of the musical language that you've spoken as a performer since you know since college days if the sound of it the sound of big guitars the sound of you know the sound of the of arena music isn't necessarily you know that is it's just the language that the that the story is told in and that the stories because I'll, I'll tell you I've talked to Al Petrelli about this and that he points at the story and just said it's an intimate story and and at the moment I'm like I hear that but I also if I if I go and hear it I'm hearing it in a room with you know 14,000 people 
and you are making it big enough and you're blowing up enough pyro to make sure 14,000 people really hear it and really see it. And so on one level, I, it doesn't connect to me, but I also f- was thinking about it afterwards and thought, this is the music he has made for you know, most of his professional career. And so he's had to, over the course of year, the years, perform songs that in his mind are intimate songs or expressing intimate emotions and intimate uh, story, thoughts. This is just the language that, the musical language he expresses them in. And, and, and I wonder if that's simply part of the story for you as well, that, you know, this is your musical language. Um, I, can, I can see both sides of that argument. Um, I, you know, I think um, well, it's interesting because with the, one of the things I've been exploring with the compositions that I put together is um, refactoring them um, with some other instrumentation. Um, I, I had some interest in doing a version of the show um, that is more um, more orchestral. And um, so when I, when I wrote the, the record, I was very thoughtful about the compositions um, so that they weren't they weren't reliant upon the language of rock and roll to be um, effective. Um, in fact, I wrote up to the guitar. I didn't start with guitar. So um, um, I don't, I, I can't speak for the TSO music, sure. but I don't think that the compositions that um, under, underpin our, our story um, rely upon um, sailing guitar to be effective. There might be a couple of exceptions, you know, um, like, you know, if you're playing, if you're playing Solfeggietto, that song just ripping fast and it's, um, it's, it's exciting to see that played with facility. Um, and so th- there are moments in the show that really get the, give the musicians an opportunity to demonstrate their musicianship. Um, and, and people who go to any, any concert, I think those moments where the musicians just really shine are, are fan favorites, you know, and, and part of a, part of a, uh, a show experience is certainly to have a few of those thrills um, but it's, it's, uh, the other, the other thing that I was thinking about though, is, um, there's, there's this kind of false dichotomy, I think sometimes, uh, and, and rock probably needs to take responsibility for part of it, but just because I don't think they always do it well, but this false dichotomy around, um, the degree to which rock music because of its bombast um, and, you know, volume, um, because of all the trappings, is in, can, can be inconsistent with certain kinds of storytelling. Uh, and, you know, that could be true of all kinds of um, concept albums or, or rock operas, as they sometimes call them. Um, and I, but I think that that criticism is, um, it's, I think it's legitimate to the degree that the the musicians and the composers um, don't really do the right do the right thing by the story, and they're not using the story to drive the music. A good example of one that did do this is, um, and I know these guys really well, is the band Dream Theater. They did an album not too long ago called The Astonishing, 
and John, the guitar player, started with the narrative before he wrote a single note. And then as they moved into the compositional phase, they thought very deliberately about characters and the, the musical themes and motifs that would accompany them. And, and they, so they stepped into it. And when you hear the record, there's definitely moments that are just vintage dream theater, but it's all in service of the story. What many of the, the artists in, in the rock sort of genre do when they write a concept album is they may have an idea for the story, but they kind of just write songs and then they try and weave them together by, by telling a story. <clears throat> so it never, for me, it never feels uh, intimate, if we want to use that as the parlance, it never feels intimate because the the songs don't seem to really, um, they don't seem to be married to the movement of the story. So it's it's a concept album um, for me that at the very least doesn't achieve as much, it doesn't resonate as much as something else. The listener gets to decide how well they think any band does that. Sure. Um, so some people may really like TSO or whoever, how, how they do it. Um, but I think that, um, I think a, a rock concert can, um, achieve intimacy, even with the, the language of its instrumentation, if the right care is given to the story, because what that will mean is it will mean in moments where, and this also requires that you've written a story with characters who are going to have moments of reflection, the, the way any story does. And then the music has to has to reflect that back, so that you have um, the 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 audience as well as. And this is how I talk about our record and our show. There's moments of that are thrilling, but there's all also these moments of of uh, profound poignancy. And um, in some ways, the contrast also. I mean, that's a human experience to have moments of doubt, moments of deep care and love and, and outpouring, and moments of. Um, bravado and moments of of sort of thrill uh so the, for me the best concept albums do that um but i'm i'm a little more critical of concept albums than others because i'm i'm a, I'm a storytelling background right um so i always look look through that lens and and for me that those fall flat um and some of the people i know that, that attend you know christmas rock concerts in particular um the degree to which the band is successful there um, you, you can kind of, uh, you know, um, based upon their their sort of feedback on the concert. Um, so I'll leave it at that. Yeah. So you you got you released Bell Ringer in 2019. Did you get a chance to perform it live then? Yes. So um, the, the the interesting history of Bell Ringer is in 2018. I had finished the composition, but we uh, hadn't released the album. We decided to go ahead and do a one-night special engagement of the thing, um, just to run water through the pipes, as they say. So we did that, and we sold the place out. It was a, it wasn't an arena; it was a mid-sized theater. But um, and I brought everybody who was on the record, and we did that. The next year. Um, in the, early in the next year, um, I wound up getting represented by William Morris Endeavor. And um, they put together a, a short-run tour for us at the end of 2019. And we went out and we did a collection of shows. And that's the year that we actually put the whole record, you know, made it available through all the normal places. 
Um, and we had intended to go out this last year, and then, of course, COVID hit. Right. So how did you deal with that? Well, with COVID, um, you know, we're new, so we certainly don't have the the built-in audience of, uh, of a TSO or, or uh, you know, any band who's been out on tour for several years. So, we, you know, we we decided to try and create some content that um, could help us just, you know, hopefully get more people interested. So we did two, two large things, two large projects. Um, as you've seen probably a ton of these during the COVID years, um, we had all of the instrumentalists record themselves at home, uh, video record. And then we edited all those together, you know, the entire album. So, um, and then stitched them together almost kind of like a virtual concert. Um, we, we did that. We did. We also did all of the songs um, with illustrations. I found a, an illustrator I loved um, online who lives in the Ukraine. And um, we worked together to create, you know, every song's got between probably 10 and 20 illustrations. And we put together illustrated versions of the songs. So we did those those two things. And then I, I found a, a voice actor in London who, um, when he did his audition, he took on it on himself to do, do it in a Bronx accent. Uh-huh. And it was, he was, so he was pay, <clears throat> paying attention because, you know, he got the material. And when, he, when I heard his read of the, the demo, um, I just knew he was right because it, it sounded like someone telling you a story and it just, it sounded like it came up from the place where the story is set. So he and I did some online sessions and, and recorded. Um, I wrote all new narration. But when we when we played the show live, um, we were doing a more typical sort of rhymed couplet approach, which you know um, precedes even TSO. I think um, Paul O'Neill said he cribbed that from ELO. <laughs> uh, so so you know the the, the idea of, of sort of presentational the, theatrical rock with <clears throat> narration to tell story <clears throat> has a long proud tradition. We did that for the the first bit, but I thought you know, it's it's hard. As beautiful as that can be, and and kind of fun live, it, it lacks quite a bit in the detail, and the um, you know, really sort of delivering on the the some of the poignancy that I needed it to. So I, I took that and I rewrote it as um, more standard narrative, and that's what we recorded, and then. Um, we I created these interstitials for both the the band recordings and the illustrated versions, and we released those. Um, and a big part of that was to um, you know have something that people could watch, but also something that could help us you know try and get the story out. Because when we when we played live, and when you know people have bought the CD, um, the uh, they really are resonating with the story. Like they're, they, they love the music, but, um, and this is, this, this is, you know, rewarding for me because, um, they are, they are getting inside the music, but the, the, the story is also touching them. And so, um, you know, our, our job now is just to grow that, um, hopefully touring will return this year, but I guess we don't know. Yeah. I have to imagine as a writer, it has to be a rare experience to be able to actually see people respond to a story you're telling. Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> I remember the very first show we did, uh, you know, we went out to the, the lobby 
and people, you know, so that we could chat with people if they wanted to. And um, a big line formed and um, people were coming through and um, that's, some of those people were in tears. And um, that was, you know, that's not everybody's experience because we're all different, but um, it, that was really gratifying because the, you know, at its core, the story I'm telling is about a guy whose life has been so hard in so many ways. Um, and he winds up feeling um, like he, there's no place for him to be. And in the course of his time, he comes across these various other people, all of whom have challenges, whether it's poverty or homelessness or illness or, you know, and in all of these cases, it turns out that, that it's exactly his uh, experience that makes him the right person to comfort and help and love these people. Um, and so what he, he, he grows over the course of the story, um, his own sense of self-worth because he sees that as, as down and turned out as he is, um, he's, he's made an in, a difference in these people's lives. And, and so the, the, um, epiphany is that, um, belonging or being home, so to speak, isn't, isn't a physical place. It's this, it's this internal place. And, um, he learns that because, you know, he was the, he was the exact person because of his hard life. And, um, I just, I love that idea. And when people hear the story, uh, it touches them. It's that it's, and this is what I think makes our story different. Um, is, you know, I, I love all the Christmas movies, you know, uh, Christmas vacation and elf and <laughs> Christmas story. I love them all. Um, but one of the things I've not seen very much of over the last 30 or 40 years is the poignant Christmas story. The, right. the stories like, like, the classics, like A Christmas Carol, It's a Wonderful Life, Miracle on 34th Street, where it doesn't trade on comedy. It's not a send-up of Christmas. It's not a it's not a romance. You know, nobody's falling in love. Um, but the 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 core of the story has to do with um, hearts changing um, and and um, you know human worth and dignity and these kinds of themes. And um, I don't know what that says about our culture, but there's just not a lot of new Christmas stories coming out like that. Right. That's the story I wanted to tell. And um, I think um, not, not for everybody, I'm sure, but there's a lot of people who um, are, were, are and were happy to um, experience a new Christmas story that um, touched upon some of those um, beautiful ideas and uh, that's what I set out to do. And I'm very proud of the music. But um, like I said, I, I wanted to tell a story um, that was edifying. Right. Um, and uh, it is, to your, to your question, um, that's as good as anything in all of this when, when someone has that experience. Sure. The bell ringer stood as Christmas drew nigh At peace in the silence and cold Somewhere out there a church bell it rang A midnight tone he now understood well 
It hadn't echoed its last When a new music came Footsteps arriving through the snow One minute another The stories return Each inviting him back to their homes So, to finish up, do you have another uh, Christmas-related you know, rock theatrical project in the works? Well, yes. Um, <laughs> I spent, <laughs> I spent, um, I don't know, the better part of a couple of weeks last fall thinking about what's next. Um, and that it gets complicated because with COVID and we all need to, you know, um, pay our bills and buy groceries. But um, as I, I started getting into it, um, and spending some time actually sort of um, creating storylines and associating um, songs, um, standards, as well as new stuff I'd have to write. I actually have, um, at the end of that creative period, I came out with four um, new storylines, all of which I love, all of which still have this core element of... um, wanting to trade on some of those edifying ideas of human selflessness. Um, The, and I actually started to um, put put together, you know, what I would need to compose and um, how, how the flow of the music and show would go. The challenge is just the time to do it. Sure. Um, Cause like all of us, you know, it's, it's not the way I subsist right now. Um, so, you know, I haven't achieved that level like a TSO where I can only do music. Um, so, uh, I've, I've ha- had to, and I've got some other projects that, um, are the things that are actually paying my bills. So the, I haven't been able to get underway with those, but the, I would say that some of these other stories, um, are, are probably even more powerful than the bell ringer story. So I'm excited to write these records, but um, I don't have any definitive timeline on them. Thanks to Peter Aurelian for the time in the talk. You can find The Bell Ringer as performed by Symphony North wherever you get your music. Thanks to AF The Naysayer for the theme music, and thanks to you for listening. If you haven't already subscribed or followed, do it now. Do it now, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're there, we're there. If you're an Apple person, a five-star review helps other people find 12 songs. We'll wrap it today with one more from Carla Blay and Carla's Christmas Carols. This is her version of Jingle Bells. Talk to you next week.
Thank you.